So today I just want to continue our series in the book of Galatians, Liberty in Jesus. So if you guys will go ahead and open your Bibles up, Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2. Now many believe that this is the first letter that Paul wrote, one of the oldest of the Pauline letters. Um, this was a time when uh, the doctrines of the faith were still being uh, tried and tested uh, one thing I think that we fail to remember sometimes is that some 2,000 years after the cross, we've had all of these historical theologians and these ancient scholars who have really delved into the doctrines and the scriptures and have really systematized and, and given us a system of beliefs and, and, and doctrines that have been pulled from the Bible. But these folks didn't even necessarily have the full Bible yet. You think about these folks in Galatia, they had just received one of Paul's first letters, which means the rest of Paul's letters had not been written yet. So these folks were uh, still working through some of these great doctrines, I think, that we take for granted. And we uh, take advantage of the fact that we have such clarity on them. So, um, so today, Paul is going to deal with one of those doctrines. So if you will, go ahead and stand to your feet. And we're going to be, begin reading in verse 15. And we stand to honor God's word here at Pole Creek. So Galatians 2, beginning in verse 15. The Bible says this, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if, right, if, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I am thankful for justification. Lord, I'm thankful the fact that we can rely on your work on the cross for our salvation. The fact that your blood was shed so that my sins could be forgiven. So today, Lord, as we read, as we study, as we see what you have for us from your precious word, I pray that you would touch our hearts that you would solidify the doctrine of justification in our life, that you would solidify in our minds the fact that legalism is against the gospel, and that you would solidify in our lives, Lord, that salvation is truly by grace and that it is nothing of ourselves, but it is a gift of God. Lord, today we entrust this time into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I think a common uh, discussion among Christians is this. Is all sin the same? Is all sin the same? And I've heard it put different ways. Um, and I really believe that there's really two ways to look at this. I would say that in one way, all sin is the same, but in another way, it's not. All sin is the same in that it causes us to be separated from a holy God. All sin causes us to be separated from God. He is holy, therefore sin offends him. Now that, I think, is in the area of all sin is the same. But sin is different in its severity, in terms of the impact against humanity. 
So for that reason, I don't believe that God looks at every sin the same way. Now, don't get me wrong. All sin is abhorrent to God. He doesn't like any sin. He is not okay with any sin. He is holy, but not all sin is equally as severe in its impact against the image of God. Now, the reason I say that is this. When we look in the Old Testament law, for example, we see that God has commanded many different things in Exodus and Leviticus. In other words, the children of Israel had just come out of the wilderness. They had been set free from the bonds of Pharaoh. And as they're coming across the Red Sea and entering into the promised land, they begin to sin. And God says, all right, you're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. This whole generation is not going to see the promised land. And as, as they're wandering through the wilderness, he begins to give them the Mosaic law. We understand the Latin is the law that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and that God gave Moses. Moses brought back down to the children of Israel. And in this law, there were several different aspects of the law. There was ceremonial aspects of the law. There was actually a legal system that God also gave the children of Israel. They were a society being governed by the laws of God. So there were certain punishments for certain sins, for certain uh, infractions against the law. God had certain punishments for murder. He had certain punishments for theft. He had certain punishments for adultery. For example, Exodus 22 speaks of the sin of theft. And the penalty for the sin of theft ranges from paying back four to five times what was taken, if it was a sheep or an ox, and paying back double the value if money or goods were stolen. All right, so we see there that God views theft in a certain way. Okay, now let's look at a different sin and see what he thinks of this one. In Leviticus chapter 24, he speaks of those who commit murder. And here's what he says about those who commit murder, that they will be put to death. It says if someone kills another person's animal, then the animal must simply be replaced. It says there's also a law concerning injuring others in cases of assault. For instance, if a man breaks another man's arm, then his arm would be broken as well. So we think that's pretty archaic, come, but that's how God's people conducted themselves, and it worked very well. Now, here's my argument. My argument is this. If God viewed all sin exactly the same, then wouldn't all sin require the same punishment in his law? If all sin was exactly the same, then that would mean not only murder would be punished by death, but also lying, but also theft. So I believe it's twofold. And I think it's important for us to understand the fact that there are certain sins that cause more damage to the image of God, which is humanity, than others. We can all honestly say that murder is worse than lying. And it's okay to say that. But what we have to always come back to is this, that God's standard is way up here. His standard of holiness is sky high. And every other sin that a human being commits, including just the fact that we are cursed by sin nature, all of those, no matter where they fall under his standard of holiness, causes us to fall short of that standard. So all sin equally causes us to fall short of God's standard, even though every sin may not be as severe, but we should look at them all as horrible. So here's the next question, and I think this is a good question for us to ask today. Are all sinners equally lost? Are all sinners equally lost? Well, I think that's a good question. When we think about the fact of, okay, if there are certain sins that are worse than others, does that mean that a murderer is more lost than a liar? Does that mean that 
someone who has uh, committed some gross act against another person is more lost than someone who stole a pack of gum from Food Lion? Well, the Bible teaches us, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. In other words, all people, regardless of what sins you have committed, you are innately a sinner. It's the sin nature within you that propels you to want to act out against God. It's the sin nature within you that causes you to want to do what God says not to do. And really, we can always use the model that's found in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. God gave them a command, very simple command, do not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree known as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there was something inside of them that propelled them to walk by that tree, something that told them, yes, you want to eat that fruit. We know that Satan engaged in deception there that day, and they ate the fruit. Today, we're still battling the same temptation. We're still eating of the tree. We're still committing the same sin. It's because innately, we're born sinners, and we have an inclination to rebel against God. So yes, all sinners are equally lost. All sinners, without salvation, without the forgiveness of their sins, without justification, will not see heaven. So is there any lost person that exists that God could not save? Any of them. Think of the worst possible human being. A lot of times our mind goes to Hitler. Our mind goes to Charles Manson. Our mind goes to Jeffrey Dahmer. Some of the most wicked people we can imagine. Is there any of these who have sinned so much that the grace of God cannot cleanse them and forgive them? Well, that's what brings us into the doctrine of justification. So as my title of my sermon today is Liberty is Available to All. This is the part two of that. I want us to understand that when the Bible talks about salvation by grace, it is not in any way discriminating against anyone. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. I've had people tell me before, you, you don't even want to know what I've done in my past. You wouldn't believe the horrible things I've done, the horrible places I've been. But you know what the Bible says? It teaches us that there is true forgiveness available to everyone. That there is no sin so great that it, can't super, that it would supersede the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, liberty is truly available to all. And as Paul is dealing with this uh, doctrine, this false teaching that's going on in the church, he's saying, listen, Jesus is the only way. And as you keep trying to pull in these additional rituals and these additional commands and these commands given by men and you're preaching them as though they're from God and you're saying, hey, uh, Gentile believers, before you can be saved, you have to be circumcised. Hey, Gentile believers, you can't eat shellfish. Hey, Gentile believers, you must obey the Judaic uh, principles and rituals in the Old Testament. Paul is coming back and he's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't have it both ways. You can't have grace you can't have the fact that salvation was paid in full by Jesus on this hand, and then also on this hand say that there are certain works and things that you must do to be saved. You can't have it both ways because the two don't mix. And that's what brings us into understanding the doctrine of justification. So in verses 15 and 16 of Galatians chapter 2, if you guys will look back there in your Bibles, 15 and 16 of Galatians chapter 2, we're going to read those again. Here Paul says, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, 
but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. As we look at the term justification, we understand that it's a legal term. And it's a legal term that expresses a judge's declaration that a person is not guilty and that that person is right before the law. It's the opposite, really, of being declared guilty and condemned. And even in today, in some situations, there's an understanding of justification that acts as a defense. Basically, it's a a way that someone can defend themselves in court by saying, well, judge, what I did, and because of the circumstances in which I did it, I know that it was illegal, but I had no other choice. I had to do that in this situation because not doing it would have been much worse than doing it. And that is an actual common day defense. Sometimes people who are um, convicted or uh, accused of crimes will actually do in a court of law. But when you think about the term justification in a legal sense, you find that there is this necessity for the judge to say, you're okay, you're good, you're not going to be punished for your crime. But here's the problem with mankind. Because we know that God is the ultimate judge, that God is sitting on the throne in heaven, and the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that there is going to come a day that is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment, that there is a great judge that is in waiting who will judge every human being one day after this life. It's known as the great white throne judgment. And in that judgment, by the way, if you're born again, you won't stand at the great white throne judgment. These are for people who don't know Christ. But at that great white throne judgment, all of their sin will be laid out before them. And they'll have a chance to give an excuse, to even give an argument. But no argument will do, because all stand guilty before a holy God. You may say, listen, judge, I gave to charity. I made sure that 10% of my salary always went to charity. I made sure to love on those in need in my community. I always gave to the local food bank. I I even uh, volunteered in my, my kids' school and ministered to children in that school. You know what the Bible says? The judge will look at you and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. There are no excuses in that day. There's no way to justify your sin on your own behalf on that day. And that judgment is coming. So that's the issue with mankind. There's no way that we can convince the great judge to overlook our sin Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Because of his holiness. Because of the fact that God is holy and God cannot deal with, cannot look at, and cannot ever, ever compromise with sin. The day that God starts to compromise with sin and say it's okay, guess what? He's no longer God. Holiness is the most essential characteristic and attribute of who our God is. Holiness is what makes him so great and so wonderful. Infinitely and profoundly wonderful is his holiness. So we get to this point, and it's a struggle for humanity now at this point. It is a great conflict between humanity and God. Because now we look down the the, the path of eternity and we say, I know that the end is coming. I know that there's a great judge awaiting with this verdict against me. I know that there's no way that I can justify my sins on my own, so what do I do? How can I come through this conflict? Is there any hope for me? 
Well, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, the Bible says this. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness. Of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. In our very own constitution here at Pole Creek, we have our constitution and bylaws. And in our constitution, we have a set of doctrinal statements that we have uh, agreed upon as a church. And these doctrinal statements go back decades. I'm not, these may even be some of the original articles of faith um, from the founding of the church. I'm not 100% sure about that. But number five in the articles of faith is justification by faith. In other words, this church has always stood on the fact that there is one doctrine that we will not compromise. There is one doctrine that we will always stand on, and that doctrine is justification by faith. And in our Constitution, it gives a description of what this means. It says this, that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And it gives a reference of 1 Corinthians 15.3. And then it says he died as a representative and as a substitutionary sacrifice. And all who believe on him are justified. There's that word. All who believe on him are justified on the single ground of his shed blood. That's justification. The fact that I know I can't be good enough. I know that I cannot justify my own sin. I know that every single time, if I stand before a holy God, I'm always going to fall short. And God knew that predicament. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. God knew that we were going to need a hero. God knew that we were going to need a savior. And that's when Jesus came on the scene. Jesus was born in a manger. He lived a perfect life. He lived for 33 years. The Bible says that he willingly died on the cross, shed his own blood, was buried in a borrowed tomb. It wasn't even his own tomb and rose again three days later to achieve victory for us over sin. Justification is me saying this, God, I know that I can't do it. God, I know that I'm a sinner. And today I am going to trust in your son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to trust in his shed blood on the cross because Jesus died in my place. Jesus was my substitute. The Bible teaches us that because we're all sinners, the judgment should have fallen on us. Did you hear in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God is directed and focused on all godlessness? Which means that if I'm a sinner, that the wrath of God should have been laser-focused on me. It should have come toward me unadulterated with the full power of God's wrath. But Jesus came on the scene, and Jesus stood in between me and God's wrath. The Bible teaches us that as Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on his Son. Jesus was beaten to the point of not even being recognizable as a human being. He was blasphemed. He was punched. He was starved. He was dehydrated. He was ridiculed. And you know what one of the worst things in the world are about uh, crucifixion? Is that people die by suffocation who hang on a cross. And he was having to push up to get air because his lungs were so stretched And so exhausted. And as he pushed up, that spike through his ankle was sending excruciating pain into his body every time he just wanted to take 
one breath. People say, Ben, why in the world would God pour out his own wrath on his son? Remember John 3, 16? For God so loved the world. Why don't we make that personal and you just say your own name. For God so loved Ben that he allowed his son to die on that cross. Guys, that's justification. And that's one of those doctrines that we must stand on, that we must proclaim, that we must hold dear, that we must not let anyone ever compromise. And here Paul is saying in verses 15 and 16, listen, Jews, because here's what the Jews were doing. If you remember from last week, Peter was saying, I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles when the Jews come in town because they're going to make fun of me and they're going to say that I'm breaking the law by eating with those who are unclean. So when the Jews are around, I'm going to withdraw and make myself look like a good Jewish uh, believer and someone who believes in those Jewish rituals. Because they kept preaching these false doctrines of having to obtain a standard of righteousness through what people did as opposed to the righteousness of Jesus. So here Paul is combating that and he's saying, listen, even we Jews come by faith. Even though we're Jews and we know the law and we were uh, brought up within the bounds of the law, hey, even we must be saved because no one can be justified by the law. Verse 16, and yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves, he's talking about the Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Why? Because the works of the law, there in verse 16, no human being will be justified. He's saying, why are you playing that game, Peter? Why are you trying to add all this extra stuff into salvation? Why are you ridiculing certain people because of their ethnicity? Because you're trying to please those who are wrapped up in the law and wrapped up in legalism. He's saying, don't you realize even we have come to Christ by faith? Even you, Peter... And if you go back to Acts chapter 15, you find at the Jerusalem Council that Peter was preaching the doctrine of grace. Peter truly believed that salvation was by faith and not of works. But at some point in Peter's ministry, he had drifted back into this idea that I can do something to make God love me more. I can do something to be more saved. I can do some stuff that's going to better ensure the fact that I'm going to heaven. And Paul's saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Well, you can't be justified by the works of the law. There's nothing in you that can get you righteousness. It's by Jesus Christ. It's by the blood of the Lamb. There is no other way to heaven. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the Bible says this, For no one will be justified in his sight, talking about God, by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 says this, What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, do not covet. So when we think about the law, the law is necessary in that it conveys to us God's holiness. But if you try to live by the law, you run into hopelessness. Because the law was never designed, the Old Testament law was never designed to save you. The Old Testament law was designed so that you know what sin is. So that when you look in this mirror of the law, you realize, wow, I need Jesus. I can't do this. On my best day, I fall short of that. And the reason for the law was to communicate God is holy and you're sinful. 
And you can't be saved until you come to that knowledge. There's never been someone who says, you know, I'm not a sinner, but I, yeah, I'll accept Jesus. I just kind of like Jesus. Hey, you know what? That's impossible. What did Jesus tell the Pharisees? I didn't come to save the righteous. I came to save the lost. These people who think they've got it together, they can't be saved until they come to a place of understanding that I fall short of God's holiness. And thank God there's an answer, and that's the blood of Jesus. So when we think about a works-based salvation, and when I say that, I'm talking about a salvation that says, I can get to heaven based on what I do. And that can be any level of that. That can be some faith, some religions teach that, yes, it's by Jesus, but it's also this, this, and this. Roman Catholicism teaches that, by the way. Roman Catholicism says that, yes, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but you need to partake in Mass. It's a way of getting more grace. Yes, Jesus died, but you've also got to confess your sins to the priest. Yes, Jesus died, but you've also got to pray to the saints. Yes, Jesus died, but you've also got to venerate the Virgin Mary. So, so Catholicism, is, by the way, isn't the only one. There's some Christian faiths that believe you can lose your salvation. They believe that, okay, once you're saved, okay, you're saved by God's grace, but if you mess up, you're losing your, you lose your salvation. Now, the issue with that is, is that if I can be bad enough to lose it, or if I can be good enough to keep it, why did I need Jesus to begin with? Why did I need Jesus to save me if I can be good enough to keep my salvation on my own? Hey, listen, you're saved by his grace, and you're kept by his grace. If it weren't for the Lord Jesus Christ, not a one of us would have any hope. The Bible teaches us that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. Which means once I'm saved, the Holy Spirit stamps that seal on me. He says, you're bound, you're mine, you're not going anywhere. And that seal will remain until the day of redemption, which is when I receive my glorified body in glory. That is what God means when he saves us. He not only saves us, but he keeps us saved. And I thank God for that. That is salvation by grace. So the next thing I want us to look at is the logic of legalism. When we think about legalism, when we think about the fact that well, I've got to do certain stuff to get saved. I've got to be good enough to get saved. Or even after salvation, I've got to be good enough to keep my salvation. Well, let's really think about this logic. Let's really think about what that means when someone says that to us. Because the key is, as, as people who I would hope to, would inspire to be smart, wise people, we need to think through the things that we hear. When someone makes a statement, I hope that you're not the kind of person that just says, Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that sounds great. I hope you're the kind of person that will actually think through statements. Actually consider if it's true or not. You know, we think about even our, our national media today, the news media. You know, if you believe everything you hear on the news, you got problems. You're really confused, okay? Listen, you, we need to be a people who actually think about things who actually make logical conclusions based upon evidence that we're given, as opposed to just believing anything and everything. And I would truly say that logic is a friend of those who choose to think. Logic is even a gift from God. So here Paul is actually using logic, a system of logic, to argue the fact that salvation is by grace and it really can't be by anything else. Logic is the reason so many had issues during COVID. Now, you know, I hope I don't scratch any wounds here, but I think this is a good place for us to talk about how we think through things that we're told to do. There were many states in our country where churches were shut down. 
Y'all remember that, right? Thankfully, North Carolina was not one of them. We were never forced to shut down, and we're thankful for that. But in many states, churches were forced to close their doors. And yet, the Walmart Supercenter down the road got to stay open. Now, you think about that just for a minute. Why? Let's, just, let's not just take it for what. Let's really ask the question, why? Why would a Walmart Supercenter that sees probably hundreds, if not thousands of people walk through it a day, can stay open during a pandemic where there's a contagious disease going around, but yet you're going to shut down all the houses of worship. What you might think is this. Logic would say that if COVID spreads when people sneeze, which we're pretty sure it does, then COVID could spread in Walmart just like it can in church, since people can sneeze in both places. Isn't that right? That's logic. You say, Ben, that's so simple. Exactly. That's logic. That's how you think through. That's how you understand what, how to take certain statements. So when we think about this idea of justification by faith, when we think about the fact that legalism is another salvation, okay? Let's not even look at legalism as a way of salvation, but let's look at it as a completely different salvation. The Bible teaches salvation by grace. Legalism teaches salvation by works, okay? So when we think about these two different places of salvation... Think about it like this. So you need Jesus to be saved, but you can be good enough to keep your salvation, right? So what they're saying is, is okay, if you can lose your salvation, yeah, go ahead and go get Jesus, but you better be good after you get him, or you're going to lose him. Now raise your hand if since you've been saved, you've not sinned. What? You mean you're still a bunch of sinners? That's right. That's right. Now, the Bible teaches we have a new heart and that we're changed when we're saved, but the Bible does say that we still struggle against the passions and the sins and the desires of the flesh. So if this is true, if you do need Jesus to get saved, but you've got to be good to keep him, then we're all doomed. Because what happens if you sin, you get in your car, and you drive home, and you die in a car wreck? I guess you go to hell, right? I guess you're just doomed. you got to make sure that you get resaved every time you sin because if you don't and you die unexpectedly, you're going to die and go to hell. What's the logic in that? Let's, let's think through that. Because in Scripture, God talks about the peace of God that passes all understanding. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit being joy and patience and all these wonderful things that we experience as children of Christ. He talks about liberty and freedom that we feel once we know Christ. Hey, is that a system of freedom? You know what legalism is? It's a system of bondage. It's a system of Satan whispering in your ear and he's saying, you're not good enough. You messed up too much that time, buddy. Hey, you know what? You'll never be what you need to be. You might as well give up. That's legalism. But on the other hand, salvation by grace and living by grace after you're saved is this. I know I'm not going to be perfect, and I am going to do my best. But praise God, he's given me a new heart. I love him, and I'm going to live in a relationship with him. And if I mess up, and when I mess up, his grace is sufficient for me. We, we repent of our sin when we mess up. We say, okay, I messed up. I repent, I turn from it, and I keep living for Jesus. That's freedom. Legalism, no, that's not freedom. And it goes against everything that Scripture teaches. Paul even goes on a little bit further, and he said that if doing the things Christ taught was okay is actually sinful, 
then is Jesus one who causes people to sin? Did you hear that in verses, um, I think it was verse 18, if you'll go down there? I'm sorry, no, verse 17. It says, but if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. He's saying this, okay, if Jesus says it's okay to eat with Gentiles, if Jesus says it's okay to eat shellfish, if Jesus says it's okay to do these things, by the way, it's even okay to mow your yard on Sundays. Did y'all know that? Because Sunday's not the Sabbath. Saturday's the Sabbath. God commanded the Jews to keep the Sabbath holy. In the New Testament, Jesus said we find our rest in Jesus, not in the day of the week. So, so when you think about those things in, in the time of grace that we're living in, as Jesus is, is speaking to us, he's saying, you can let go of some of that stuff. The stuff that he reiterates in the New Testament, yes, we should follow and we should do. But all those specific technicalities of the Old Testament law, and even the parts that the Pharisees added on top of that, hey, Jesus is saying, you can let go of that. But what Paul is saying is, is that, okay, if Jesus told us to let go of that stuff, but yet by letting go of that stuff, we're sinning. Is Jesus a promoter of sin? He's trying to use the logic here. He's saying, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus told us these things. And now you're saying by doing what Jesus said, we're sinning and we're falling back into sin? So basically, Peter, by living in legalism, you're saying that Jesus is a promoter of sin. And you know what Peter probably thought at that point? No, I've, I've never meant that. The fact is, Peter had not thought through the logic of the situation. He had not thought about the logical conclusion of him abstaining from Gentiles when the Jews came in in order to try to uphold some Old Testament laws. But now Paul is laying it out there for him. He's saying, listen, if you're going to live up to this standard, then you might as well call Jesus the biggest sinner of us all. And he got to thinking. Now, we never know the conclusion of this argument, or not really an argument, but it was really a rebuke from Paul to Peter but we find later on in the letters that Peter wrote, he held to justification by grace in a very real way. And I can't help but think that when Paul lovingly rebuked his brother here, that, that Peter said, you know what, you're right, Paul. I've been legal, living in legalism. I've been allowing my own righteousness and my own standards to dictate who I am, and I've pushed the grace of Christ to the side. And I've got to quit that. I've got to quit living like a hypocrite. I've got to quit living in this constant contradiction between legalism and grace. And I've got to go with grace. And I believe that that made a world of difference to Peter. So then he goes on down there, and Paul brings home the logic of grace and the illogical conclusions of legalism. Paul says that if he rebuilds what he once tore down, in other words, if he abandons grace for legalism, then he is the transgressor, not Christ Jesus. Let's look at that there in verse 18. Paul says this, If I rebuild those things that I once tore down, and what he's talking about there is that system of legalism, that system of trying to be good enough, that system of trying to live by the letter of the law. He says, listen, if I rebuild that thing that I once tore down by preaching grace and by preaching the gospel of Jesus, then I am the transgressor. He's saying in that then I show myself, in verse 18, to be a lawbreaker. In other words, I'm the sinner by going back to legalism. It's as though a dog is going back to its own vomit. It's as though you're taking second best and replacing it with first best. It's In other words, I would rather live in slavery and bondage to the letter of the law than I would to live in freedom and joy in grace. It doesn't make sense. 
Why would you take second best when you can have the best? Why would you go back to this uh, type of slavery, this bondage of never being good enough, this bondage of never being able to reach the standard, this bondage of always wondering, what does my future hold when you can have grace, when you can have the unadulterated guarantee that once born again, you are sealed until the day of redemption. The guarantee that your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Why would you want bondage over freedom? And Paul is making that argument. And that brings us to this last point, the source of righteousness. So if you're taking notes, write that down, the source of righteousness. And we find that in verses 19 through 21, where the Bible says this, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Hannah and I just recently watched a season of, it's a reality TV show called Alone, and I'm sure some of you have watched that as well. This is a reality show where several people are chosen and then dropped off in the vast wilderness of Canada. Now, there's a couple of things that they can take. They're able to take a few select items for survival, but all their food has to be acquired in the wilderness. Now, when we're talking about this type of wilderness, we're not talking about Smoky Mountains National Park. We're talking about grizzly bear country. We're talking about so far remote that you couldn't even walk to a town before starving to death. That's how deep in the woods these guys are. The object of the game, and ladies, is to be the last one left after all the others either voluntarily bow out or are forced out because of health concerns. In a few situations, some of the contestants lose so much weight and have such little energy that they are unable to look for food or perform the most basic tasks in order to survive. There was one guy on the season that I watched. He went in nearly 300 pounds, and he said that was kind of his, uh, his plan, his strategy. You know, he was just going to beef up and eat a bunch of food and go in like 300 pounds because if he had to starve, at least he could starve longer than anyone else. The dude lost 100 pounds. I'm not kidding. And he got, he got second place. His strategy almost worked. Now, I can get behind that strategy. How many of y'all can get behind that strategy? I hear you. That's, that's good stuff, right? I don't have to learn how to hunt, fish, or anything. I can just eat a bunch of McDonald's and be fine. But anyways, the dude still didn't win. But he came to the point where he was just sitting in his shelter, and he was just depressed and crying. And he couldn't even get up and go find food. He couldn't even take care of himself anymore. And when you think about that, you think about us spiritually. You think about the fact that as we go through this life, day by day, there are times when we can't even pick ourselves up. There are times when we get so worn out, we get so beat up, we get so discouraged, we just can't go another, another mile. And in our own power, we fail. In our own power, we're doomed. But you know what's beautiful? Our power comes from a different source than us. The fact that I can persevere does not come from Ben's own abilities. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from the fact that I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So even as though, just like on that show, I have been dropped into this wilderness, I have been dropped into this sinful world, and I'm having to fight, and I'm having to, to struggle through life with certain things, and there's times where I'm so tired I can't get up. You know what? I don't have to be like those guys stuck in the wilderness who have to push the red button and get somebody to come rescue them. 
The one who rescued me lives within me. And he's the one that comes alongside of me and he says, Ben, you're right, you can't do it anymore. This, this life that I've called you to, you're right, you can't live it, but guess what? I'm going to live it through you. Living inside of you, I'm going to give you the power that you need to go the next day. You say, God, I can't make it anymore. He says, oh yeah, you can. Just give it one more day. Next day, just give it one more day. And you look back and you realize God got you through the storm. God got you through the valley, and you were in front of this storm, you were in front of this difficulty, and you were in front of this challenge, and you were saying, there's no way I'm going to get to the other side, and there comes a day when you look back, and the storm is behind you. You say, how did I do it? You didn't. God did it. God got you through the storm. And here Paul is telling Peter this same thing. He's saying, listen, Peter, if you don't quit teaching people that their righteousness comes by the works of the law, you're going to be leaving them out in the wilderness and they're not going to have any way out and they're going to die in the wilderness because they're going to give themselves the credit for their faith and themselves the credit for the source of their power and they're going to completely ignore the grace of Christ. Did you hear what he said in verse 19? For through the law, I died to the law. Why did he do that? Why did he die to the law? So that I might live for God. He's saying, listen, there was no way that I could live according to the law. I would have died. I would have been hopeless living under the law. So I died to that mess. I died to my legalistic tendencies so that I could live unto God. And then you get on down in verse 20, it says this. So I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Christianity is the only, only faith that says, I, I need to die. In order to live, I need to die. He's saying this in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, I have been killed. I, I am dead. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, when I'm in the wilderness and I'm fighting the battles and I'm struggling through these different things that life throws at me, maybe it's a difficult time at work, maybe it's family issues, maybe it's this deep, dark secret that's come out now and it just has ruined your life. He's saying, listen, if you'll die to yourself and you'll let Jesus live in you, you'll have the power to get through it. He says here, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, there's this idea nowadays that if you just believe enough in yourself, if you just believe that you can do it, if you just muster up enough uh, motivation, you can do whatever you want. Does that sound biblical? The Bible says you're not going to make it unless you admit you can't do it. You're not going to make it until you die to yourself. And until you say, Jesus, I'm hopeless without you. You're everything. I give it to you, Jesus. That's biblical, by the way. We can't get caught up in this stuff where I can just muster up enough and just enough confidence and I can do anything. The Bible says you can't do that. Verse 21, and then we'll pray. Verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, Paul says. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. He's making the whole argument that we said from the beginning. If I can be good enough to keep my salvation, then that means that I could have been good enough to be saved, which means Jesus shouldn't have died, which means Jesus' death was in vain. And it nullifies the entirety of the gospel. Hey, when you live in a system of legalism, you may not be thinking this consciously, but you have to understand that when you live according to regulations and rituals and your own goodness, you are saying that Jesus isn't good enough. 
You're saying that what Jesus did on the cross didn't pay the price in full. That he only paid maybe 10% of it. Only 20%. Hey, let me tell you something. Jesus is God. Jesus is God who became flesh. And when God dies to achieve a task, guess what? He does it all. The Bible says when Jesus gave up the ghost right before he said, It is finished. That doesn't mean we need to go back and we need to help Jesus. Hey, Jesus doesn't need our help, by the way. He did it all on the cross. So today, if there has been a time and a place in your life where you've trusted the work of Christ on the cross for your salvation, there's nothing left to be done but just enjoy living with Jesus. Just enjoy being in a relationship and serving the King. But if there's never been a time and a place in your life where you've done that, the Bible does teach us that it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. And my question for you is, would you just say yes to Jesus today? Based upon his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raising from the dead, you shall be saved. We're going to have some pastors up front here in just a minute. You're welcome to come forward and we'll counsel you and talk to you if you want to receive Christ. You can also just receive him right there where you are just by simply saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I can't do it anymore. I can't live up to the standard. But I know you can and you did and you died for me. Will you save me? based upon your death and resurrection. The Bible teaches us that if you trust in Christ, that he will save you. Let's pray.